You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as the family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. How's everybody doing this morning? A little bit of winter for us the last couple days. Um, as much as I don't love the cold, I really don't mind the snow. So we've had a great winter so far. I am happy about that, and our plowing budget loves it as well. So. Um, if you're new with us this morning, really glad you're joining us. If you're joining us online, we've been doing a series called Soul Training. So just kind of jumping into the new year, we decided that uh, we kind of wanted to get basic with some things in our life that is about training for us. You know, Paul writes this one scripture, and he says this, physical training is good, but spiritual training is better, <laughs> We actually have to train our lives, our spirits within us to become what God wants us to be. It doesn't just happen because we snap our fingers or because we said a prayer or because, you know, we simply want it to. We actually have to train our lives to look like what God has called us to look like, to be what we're designed to be. And it takes some practice. It takes some time. And so we're all in process, right? Every one of us, no matter how long we've known God, whether it was today, this morning, or you've known him for most of your life, we're all training to become what God's called us to be. Um, and you know, listen, some days you're training well, and some days you're not. You're sitting on the couch, and you're barely trying, and that's okay, all right? So we wanted to kind of take January to say, okay, what is it that God calls us to? And so we use this word, soul training. We believe it's for us to kind of recapture those things that matter really deeply in our lives. So we've talked about fasting. We've talked about prayer. And uh, this morning, I actually want to talk about worship. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open up to John 4. And it's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, um, really from Jesus' time ministry, is John 4, the woman at the well. So I'm just going to give you a little background of what's taking place here. Uh, we're not, it's really not about the whole story, but I want to give you a little background of what's happening. So Jesus is in the middle of his ministry, and he's walking basically around Israel, and he's ministering wherever God tells him to go, and He's in different places, and basically this one day it says they're walking, and he's tired. It's hot, he's hungry, and he's thirsty, and so he stops at a well, and he basically sends his disciples on to a nearby town to get some food. Well, while he's there, a woman comes to this well in the middle of the day, which is not a normal situation. Uh, usually people are avoiding going and carrying water in the middle of the day. It's really hot, but there's a reason she comes in the middle of the day. So she comes, and there's Jesus, and this is not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And part of my message today, I want to set this up so we understand what's happening. Men and women in those days were not considered very equal. Now, just because the Bible is a male driven, in a sense, spoken to men, right? If you read the literal translations of the Bible, it's always saying he, it's always saying men, it's always directing its words to men, but that is simply a product of the context of the day, not of God's heart. And maybe that bothers you or something, but listen, we can go back to Genesis 1, which sets up God's heart for humanity. Actually, let's do it, so it's not just me saying it. Genesis 1, in verse 27, it says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Listen. From day one, God called us to be equal in our value of the work here on earth. Now, do we have different roles as men and women? Absolutely. But God called us to be equal in our work and in the process of us, you know, filling the earth and governing over it, as it says in Genesis 1. But that didn't take place. Basically, part of the curse was what's, what I call a subduing so the curse happens, right? You know, they eat the fruit and Jesus kicks them out of the garden. And then part of the curse that God says over them is that 
uh, women would try to subdue their husbands, but husbands would rule over their wives, or men would rule over women. That was the curse. That's not the way it's supposed to be. So sometimes we've taken that and tried to think that's the norm, but it's not. We're supposed to be living how? His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, let me tell you, in heaven, we're equals. You know, my last verse on the notes, Galatians 3, it says it this way, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. In God's eyes, in our value, we are equal. And as we've been praying, you know, um, on Wednesday nights, we've been kind of going through the Our Father prayer. And the first thing is we're supposed to be acting and living in his kingdom, not our own. And so Jesus comes to this well. Now just be thinking of this. And a woman comes. In those days, men and women were not interacting unless you were married. They really were not conversing. You weren't just having friendships with people of the opposite sex. It was really not a norm to talk to another woman. And then he crosses another boundary in this story. And she's a Samaritan woman. Now, I'm going to be kind of blunt. The Jews in those days were a little bit racist. They were the children of God. Now what they did with that understanding of being the children of God, so God uses this group of people, the Hebrew people, and he sets them apart, and he wants to use them as a model and a symbol for the world to look at on how they're supposed to live. But what he didn't say is, you're better than everyone. They thought they were. And thousands of years of God blessing them and rescuing them made them think that they were better than everyone else. And so they, you know, the Samaritans were kind of an intermingled group, actually, is what took place. But really, the Samaritans were this cast out of society of the, of the Jewish culture, and they were not to be really talked with, and you don't intermarry with them, and you don't really spend time with them, and they have different, little bit of different beliefs about things with God, and so they were really looked down upon. And Jesus, in this moment at the well, so this woman comes, and we'll, we'll pick up here. It says, uh, verse 7, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised. For Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. That was a nice way of putting it. For Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? She was surprised. She was caught off guard. Why is this man, who's a Jew, asking me for a drink? He's breaking the rules on how we interact. Jesus replies, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestors Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replies, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. The woman keeps going, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands. And you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Jesus. Wow, a little personal, don't you think? Like, sometimes we read through these scriptures and I think we just think everything Jesus says is all holy and lovey-dovey and like perfect. But listen, this is an awkward moment. Jesus starts kind of spouting off to this woman some symbolistic thinking and she doesn't even understand what he's talking about and he's saying living water. And then he says, go get your husband. He basically sets her up to have to reveal to, to, 
to him that she's not married. And then he tells her what he knows because he knows her more than she knows herself. No, you've had five husbands and you don't, you're not even married to the man you're living with now. Ouch. So what does she do? Like any smart person, she tries to change the subject. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me. And this is what happens. He pokes her right where it hurts the most. And then she tries to change the subject and ask, her, ask him the most religious question she thinks of. And this is that religious question. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist on Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim it's here at this mountain where our ancestors worshiped. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we, jo while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Honestly, if you're just reading through this story, it's kind of hard to follow. First, Jesus is thirsty, so he asks for a drink. Then he takes the moment to kind of be all symbolistic and he talks about living water and how he can basically offer this eternal life to this woman. And so she asks for it. And instead of saying, yeah, here it is, he decides to out her sin. And he pokes her where it hurts. And in response, then she changes the subject and asks this very religious question about where the most holy place to worship is. Is it in Jerusalem or is it here on our mountain? And then Jesus kind of goes on to a whole nother thing about worshiping in spirit and in truth. I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem very cohesive to me. But really, Jesus is trying to make a point to this woman. And, and in my opinion, it actually is a whole one story. And the ending of this part where he talks about worshiping in spirit and in truth has to do with the fact that she's had five husbands. It has to do with the fact that he has living water to offer. But yet she's kind of confused by it, and so she goes on, and we're going to come back to it. So the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. So she's just as confused as you and I, okay? And so she just goes, well... I don't know what you're talking about now. First it was living water, and now it's worshiping in spirit and truth. But listen, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then this is an incredible moment. The first person Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah to, and he says, I am the Messiah. Now that probably threw her for an even bigger loop. But I really think something happened in the reasoning why Jesus pushed on that button about her previous lifestyle. I think he was interested on what she was going to say. Because he ends with this thought, you certainly spoke the truth. Now, I've read that many times and often felt like it was a little sarcastic. Like, oh yeah, you certainly spoke the truth. Like a little, you know, kind of derogatory about the fact that she just admitted, yeah, I don't have a husband. But honestly, what I think happened in that moment was she was honest in front of him and it allowed him to be vulnerable and say who he was in front of her. He pushes this really hurtful button in her life she asks this religious question, but yet he reveals he's the Messiah to her. She was, I really believe, already worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And her life was super messed up. 
She cared about God in, in the way she knew how. She was worshiping, you know, probably in practice on this mountain where her ancestors worshiped, and she was actually possibly interested in understanding the difference between the Jews and the Samaritans in that way. She answers a, a difficult question fairly truthfully. I mean, she didn't say, well, I've had five husbands, but he reveals it to her, and he says, it's, it's a time's coming when it will no longer matter where you worship. You know, today as we're talking about worship and soul training, the first part I want to say to you is, it does not matter how you come to God in worship. Listen, I don't care if you've been divorced or remarried or any of that. Jesus' grace and redemption covers our lives. I really hope you haven't been married five times. I can't imagine the pain involved in that. But think about it. Just... I mean, some of you have been divorced. Think about the one time. Think about five. Something's very deeply broken and hurting inside this woman. And Jesus is challenging her that she can worship in spirit and in truth. And I'm telling you this morning, the first thing you have to know about worship is you can come any way you come. Every time you walk into this room and we lift up songs to worship him and anytime you come before God, you can come in any fashion. You don't have to have your life together. It doesn't have to look all perfect. You could have screwed up this morning, walked into church and sang the songs and if you're lifting up your heart in a truthful way, in a way that really says this, because I'm gonna talk about what worship means, then God will accept your worship. So worship originally was simply this. It was a position. Does anybody, can anybody guess what the position was? Bowed down. In fact, it really meant head touching the ground. Worship was always actually about a position first and, and the symbolic sense of someone's head touching the ground before something simply meant Whatever I'm bowing before is above me. It's more important than me. And I'm going to worship this thing. And so, of course, you see in the Old Testament, you see stories where, you know, they, they would be, you know, tried to force certain people to bow down to something. that They refused. It wasn't about the position, literally, like, oh, I can just kneel, or why can't you kneel? It was the idea of what it meant. It meant I'm going to place this thing above me. And like Daniel's friends, they refused. They said, no, we won't do that. And so worship originally was a symbolistic position of someone's life before something else. Now we've added song to it, I, and song's been around for a very long time in the Old Testament. And something happens when we sing songs of worship, it reorients our heart, and, and like Jesus is saying, it's not just simply about a position, but now it's about a position of our life. It's about a position of our heart before him. And what Jesus is challenging when he says in spirit and in truth is this. I don't care what you look like on the outside. I care what's happening on the inside. It matters more to Jesus that we worship in spirit, meaning that our spirit is bowed to him, that our life is bowed to him, and that we are acting in that truthful way, rather than what was happening with the Jews was they were ritualistically doing it with their head bowed down, but he was saying, they're not actually worshiping me. The position doesn't actually really matter. How it you do it, it doesn't really matter. now. And then even Jesus is saying, where you do it doesn't matter. Because in those days, they were still thinking about the old temple. They were still thinking about, you know, Solomon building the temple in Jerusalem and that this was the place where God's presence dwelled and it was the only place you could come to worship. It doesn't matter where you do it. It doesn't matter how you do it. It doesn't matter when you do it. It just matters that you... Do it. As long as our life looks bowed down. Let me, let me read Romans 12.1. I think it explains it well for us. Let's turn to Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans of that day. 
And he writes this, so dear, so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. He says, give your bodies. And really just that, that word there could easily be interpreted your life, your, your being, your everything, the thing that's most important to you. Give it to God. And then he says, this is truly the way to worship him. Our lives are meant to be a worshipful life. So we come on Sunday and we sing songs, you know, three, four songs on a Sunday morning in worship to him. But really those songs themselves are not the worship we are. The position of our spirit, the position of our heart towards God when we sing those words, that is what worship is. And what I think is amazing, if we go back to John 4, is that I believe worship and living water are connected. That first thing that Jesus brings up to the woman, and he says, I have this living water for you. I have this water that you'll never be thirsty again. And, and I think often we, as Christians, still get thirsty in a way in our lives, don't we? And I think that when we come in a worshipful attitude with our life or we come and worship in church on a Sunday, that we're actually drinking that eternal water, the water that is supposed to give us true, real life. I mean, I'll be, like, for real, whenever I'm just not in a good place, my go-to, some worship music. Anybody ever listen to, even, hey, let's be honest. You ever come on a Sunday and some of the songs we sing, it's almost hard to say the words? Actually, this morning, I always struggle with, you haven't failed me yet. Always. Because I want to, because there's things that have happened in my life that I think to myself, mm, but is it true? And usually I'll force myself to sing it anyway, and something happens. All of a sudden, I remember his goodness, like Anna reminded us of this morning. And I realized that I was probably running away from his goodness. And really, the things that maybe have fallen or failed in my life weren't really God's fault, but probably mine. And, these, and the words actually somehow reorient my heart to remember what God has done. It's like a drink. It's like satisfying that thing in your heart that's gone dry, this, this place that's kind of started to dry up inside you and you forget God's goodness and you forget what he's like and you forget that he cares about you, you forget that he's close to you in your life and it's easily changeable if we come in worship. And it doesn't just have to be songs. It can simply be something that you say, God, this is more, you're more important than this thing in my life. God, you're more important than, than, than this in, in this kind of area of my life, whether it's my job or my family or my friends. You know, Jesus makes some crazy statements about family. At one point, he literally says, unless you give up, unless you forsake your mother, your brother, you, you know, you cannot follow me. And really, it's a hyperbolistic statement. He doesn't literally mean leave them, but he's saying everything has to be less important than me. And I think in our society, in our world, that's sometimes hard for us to swallow. But I'll tell you this, what I've realized, when Jesus is priority one, you do everything else better. When Jesus is priority one and I come in a life of worship to Jesus, I can actually be a good husband. I can actually be a good father. I can actually be a good friend. But if I try to put those things first, I end up failing at them. 
And so our life is supposed to be a life of worship, a position where we come and constantly remind ourselves and constantly say to God, you're more important. God, we want you over everything in our life. We put our head down below you and you are more important than everything that we think is important. In the end of that story in John 4, the woman runs back to town. Actually, the disciples come back, and at first they're just kind of annoyed at him. And they're whispering, like, why is he talking to this woman? He's not supposed to be acting like this. He shouldn't be talking to her. (coughs) And then she runs back into town, and she brings all her friends. And basically, this whole town experiences salvation because this woman experiences Jesus. Because she experienced what it means to actually worship someone in spirit and truth. To actually be truthful with her life. And to say, okay, I'm going to put my life low right now. And believe this man who's speaking into me. Who says he's the Christ. I think we all have the same opportunity in our life. If you've gotten to know Jesus at all. Sometimes he pushes your buttons. If you've come to Jesus and you're a Christian and he's never made you uncomfortable, you haven't come close enough yet. He's going to push those buttons. He's going to point out the things that are hurting you in your life. You see, he didn't use it as a moment to shame her. He was trying to put his finger on the most broken part of her life to say, this isn't how it's supposed to be. God has better for you. I have more for your life than this. And sometimes God will come in our lives and he'll kind of put his finger on us and he'll point something out and he'll kind of show us something that isn't right. And we have a choice in that moment. Are we going to respond in a sense of worship so that he can transform us? Or are we going to be a little defiant? Maybe a little resistant? You know, I think sometimes Christians, we get into this cycle where we come to church, we sing the songs, we listen to the message, we go home, but yet we, we kind of stay resistant to that worshipful attitude in our lives. We stay resistant to God kind of saying, hey, I'm supposed to be more important than you. I'm supposed to be more important than all of your wishes and desires. And we're a little resistant to that. And then we wonder why Christianity is kind of lame. Because we actually haven't let it all the way in. You see, a worshipful attitude, when you're bowed low, there's not much defense there. It's hard to defend from a place with your head sticking on the ground. But for some reason, the only way Jesus really works in our life is with a complete attitude of surrender. But sometimes we... We take Christianity as like, hey, I just want certain parts of it. And then it doesn't seem to really work like we thought it would. And and maybe we still come to church or maybe we just don't. But really the issue was we didn't let God all the way in. We didn't have that worshipful attitude where God could come in in any way he felt he needed to. We wanted to hold him at an arm's distance. We wanted to be protective or defensive. But yet Jesus is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. I really believe this simply means that people will be surrendered in all they are. And the truth part just means don't fake it. Let's go to Romans 12. I love this. Verse 2, he says, Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. This is what should happen in worship. If you come... On Sunday morning, and you know, I hear this all the time, you come and we're singing songs, we're singing these worshipful songs, people tell me, I don't know why, I just started crying. Because God's trying to transform you. He's trying to unearth things in your life so that he can do a work in your heart. I'm telling you, transformation happens in worship. It happens when we let our guard down and our obstacles down and we bow our head in that way and then God can come and transform us. 
Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Let's jump down to verse 9 and 10. I love this. He says this, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. There's a, there's a place in Christianity where sometimes we get to be really good pretenders. We're good at putting on the right show in the right moment for the right people because maybe we don't want to even acknowledge to our own selves the difficulty of what's happening. We don't want to acknowledge to the world around us that we're struggling in some way or that we don't understand a situation in some way or, or that we don't really want to even stop a certain way of living. So we just put on a show and we become pretenders. And I love Paul. He's just, he's just blunt. Don't pretend to love people. Actually love them. Don't pretend to be a certain way. Actually be that way. Hate what, and then he says this, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection, and take delight in honoring each other. You know, I wanted to address this morning, just kind of thinking about the events of this year, and talking to some friends, and, and even the fact that tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day. We have had an extremely divisive last year. In our world. And it's been on almost every platform that you can think of. Obviously, politics, extremely divisive. Racism, with the different killing of different folks that are black, George Floyd and, and those others that have been killed in different ways and the, and the protests and the riots that have ensued from all those kinds of things. We've had extremely divisive moments in this year's history. And I remember thinking back in June when the whole George Floyd thing took place that the issue, yes, there's an issue with racism, but really there's an issue with us. And the issue is that we think at times we're better than someone else. The Jews were guilty of this. We've been guilty of this. The whole world has been guilty at looking down on someone else. It doesn't have to be even about the fact that their skin color is different. What about the clothes someone wears? What about the house someone lives in or the car someone drives? Or the way someone talks? Or the sports team someone likes? I mean, we find all sorts of ways to look down on someone else. To, to put them down, to, to kind of separate them. But the reality is that Jesus comes on the scene and in, in, in Christianity, our lives, we're supposed to be unifying people. Now, I, I really appreciate this verse. He says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. But he says this, hate what is wrong. We should hate divisiveness. We should hate racism. We should hate those things that separate people for any reason. Now here's the funny line. It doesn't say hate who is wrong. It doesn't say it. It says hate what is wrong. We're never supposed to hate who is in the wrong, even if someone is in the wrong. We're not called to hate them. In fact, let's jump down quite a little bit. And he says this, verses 14, Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of people and don't think you know it all. Verse 17, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Listen, in our world, we are never, we're called to hate what is wrong. We're never called to hate who is wrong. And listen, because this is, this is the best part. 
we're all wrong. Democrats, you're wrong. Republicans, you're just as wrong. White people, you're wrong. Black people, you're wrong too. Are you alive and breathing? You're wrong. But what happens in us is we see something in injustice, but we react in injustice. I mean, I know it's our right to protest. It absolutely is as an American, just not as a Christian. Sorry. An American? Sure, go protest all day long. Go point out what's wrong with the other side and their thinking. Just let me, let me tell you this. You won't win anybody to Christianity in the process. You won't win anybody to Jesus by holding a sign up for anybody or anything. Even Jesus. I'd love to understand if there was any statistic for anybody who held a sign up even for Jesus on a street corner and people came to Christ. I've never seen people come to Christ in my life through some sort of pointing out how they're wrong, but I have seen many come to Christ through love. Through saying, hey, let me show you a different way. Not through condemnation, but saying, listen, this is not what God has for your life. God has something more for you. But as Christians, we've gotten mixed up and we've started to turn into, hey, who is wrong? And we decide to decipher who is wrong. You know, I mean, I, I've, I'll be really trying to be as honest as possible. I've been under immense pressure from every opinion possible to stand with their thinking, whoever the person is in the moment. How come we're not praying for Trump more? He's God's answer for this country. <sighs> That's my answer. How come we're not condemning Trump more and, and his racist acts? He's what's all that's wrong with this country. <sighs> that's my answer. Because at the end of the day, it's not who's wrong. How come we're not standing with, with this movement? Or how come we're not condemning this thing? Or how come we're not doing this? At the end of the day, I cannot determine who is wrong. There are some people who are wrong. Guess who gets to determine that at the end? Jesus. It's not you and I. We don't get in the judgment line in front of Christ and Jesus gets to judge someone's salvation and then we don't get to line up behind him and also judge. We don't get to say, yeah, but I saw those posts on Facebook, Jesus. Did you see them? But Jesus, I saw when they acted this way or when they cursed in this way or when they said this towards that group of people. Jesus, are you sure they're not condemned? We don't get to make that choice. Now, we can hate what is wrong, and I hate all those things, all the stuff that has divided us over this year, but I, we have to work hard to not point fingers at people. We can point fingers when something goes awry. You know, I remember the, the, the morning of the George Floyd incident, and I watched the video of those men kneeling on his neck, and... Uh, Regardless, I, I'm not here to debate anything about it. All I could think was this. Those guys don't know what they're doing. And I remember I was like broken. Obviously for the man on the ground, but also for the man on his neck. And I thought to myself, isn't this exactly what Jesus would have said? And it actually didn't he say? As they hung him on a cross... As they crucified him, he says, God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And I'll be honest, most of the time, when we're angry at another side of things, 
the person doesn't know what they're doing. Even when we commit wrong to people, usually we're always trying to defend our intentions. Are we not? We always have the best of intentions, but nobody else does, right? Let's have grace for people's intentions, even if it's a little bit wrong. Because guess what? You're a little bit wrong too. And it's okay. We're all in process. We're all trying to move towards Jesus. And if you're not, start moving towards Jesus. Because I'll tell you, you won't find hope in anything this world has to offer. We've tried it. Many of us have. It doesn't work out. The hope and the joy and the peace in our lives will only come from one source. It's Jesus. It won't come from whoever's in the White House or in the Senate. It won't come from whatever protest has a good outcome. It won't matter. At the end of the day, our hope and change and transformation in this world will come within people through Jesus. And our greatest hope is to see someone's heart transformed, to see someone literally look at another person in a way they never have and have love for them, not just pretending. Because imagine a world like that. Imagine a world if someone on the opposite side of the, of the political aisle, you didn't look at them with disdain and hate, but you literally said, I love them. I think they're a little confused, but I love them. Imagine how things would change then. We wouldn't have to try to legislate goodness and morality into the world. We would choose it. That's a worshipful attitude. You see, they're connected. It's why Paul starts in Romans 12 by saying, offer your lives Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. This is truly the way to worship him. And then he describes the way we worship him is by loving each other and not pretending, by hating what is evil, but not who is evil, and not taking revenge, and, and not doing these things, and not thinking yourself of better than you really are. All the things Paul's right, those are the ways that we can best worship God in the world we're in. Imagine as Christians, if in the world we looked that way more often, more consistently. This is what the world is looking for, though. This is what people who don't know God are really looking for. They don't know it yet. I mean, honestly, I think this generation is full of people who are very unsatisfied with just the status quo, and I think it's really an incredible opportunity. I talked to this guy a couple months ago, actually, on the sidewalk in Potsdam, and I don't know, I just see him around Potsdam a lot because I, I drive my daughter through there every morning, and, and uh, he's always got a sign, a, a Black Lives Matter sign, Maybe usually another sign. And then he's usually doing some huge artwork on the pavement with chalk, you know, to make a statement. And so I started up a quick, a quick conversation with him. And I just was like, hey, how often are you out here? I feel like I see you a lot. He's like, yeah, I try to come out almost every day. And I talked with him just for a few minutes. But I thought to myself as I left, what an incredible person. Now, do I agree with his statements? Maybe, maybe not. But I'm telling you, someone who's willing to come out and do that is looking for something more than the world has offered him. He doesn't know he's looking for Jesus yet, but he is. He doesn't know he's looking for that real living water, that thing that won't make him thirsty over and over again, but he is. The world is looking for that kind of purpose, that kind of life. And if we show them what it really looks like, what Jesus is really like, I think they're going to become more interested. But if all we show them is our political banner, our political choice of the day, or whether we're for Black Lives Matter, or against Black Lives Matter, or for police, or against police, or, or whatever is the thing happening at the moment, 
I'm not sure they're going to see Jesus through all of that. But in worship, we come to love each other. We put our head down and Jesus reminds us of what's most important. In worship, I think the world can actually see God's nature. A people who realize what's most important in life. A people who realize that they aren't the most important thing in life. That's what God's calling us to in worship. Now listen, it takes practice. It's okay if you're not good at it. I'm not. It's practice. That's why we come each week. (laughs) That's why we train on a continual basis in our lives. That's why we read scripture. It's why we pray. It's why we worship in song. Because we know, God, you need to continue to transform us. You need to continue to process us. Why don't we stand this morning? Keys can come, maybe. I included this Martin Luther King quote. You know, I, I've, been, uh, I've been down to um, Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is where Martin Luther King was actually a pastor, as he also was an activist at the time. And, and really, I love listening to some of his speeches because really he's just preaching. Now, I'd love to actually hear today's activists sound a little more like Martin Luther King which is basically him just teaching biblical principles to the world. And he says this, we all know it, hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. But love only comes from one correct source, it's Jesus. MLK knew that. Christianity for the last couple thousand years has had to be reminded of that, that we are called to love the world around us. And in that, God can transform. God can capture hearts. God can convict. God can kind of put his finger on people's lives and point out how they need to change. That's God's job. We're supposed to show them the nature of God through love. For you are all children of God. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. I think today we'd probably say there's no black or white, there's no Democrat or Republican, there's no male or female. You're all one. In Christ's eyes, we're not separated by all the things we separate one another with. his children. That's what Romans really goes into. We're all his adopted children and we can call him father and we get to share in all of the the wonderful things that God has for us because we're his adopted children. Every person can be that. They just have to accept his grace. So maybe you're watching online this morning. Maybe you're in this room this morning. I want to give you an opportunity. All you have to do to get right with God is say, Jesus, I want your grace in my life. Just like that. You can do it right now. You can do it wherever you're sitting. In a moment, it can change. A new life with God can begin. You don't have to come to him in some perfect way. You don't have to get your life right. It doesn't matter how many times you've been married. Who cares? God just wants you to come. Come just like you are. Let him do the work. Let him transform your life. And then let him use you to show the world what his nature's like. So I'm just going to pray this morning. I'm going to pray that even over this next week as an inauguration comes up and as probably a day that we're all wondering what's really going to happen happens, that we would be Christians Christ followers and lovers of people before anything else. So Father, I thank you for who you are this morning. 
I thank you for what you've done in our hearts, God. I thank you for what you've done in our lives, God. I thank you that in worship today, we were reminded of your goodness. That it follows us all the days of our lives, God. And I pray that even as Anna prayed, that we would just stop this morning. Let your goodness catch up to us. That we wouldn't resist you, God. We wouldn't resist your finger on our lives. We wouldn't resist even your conviction over our hearts. But God, that we would be true worshipers of you. That we would bow our lives low. That we'd worship in spirit and in truth, God. That that in the truth of our hearts, we'd let you be Lord over our life. And that we would love others in return. That we would show this world your nature, Jesus. God, I pray right now for every person watching this morning. God, I ask for your blessing over their life. God, we ask for your protection over people right now, families and friends. And and just, God, we ask right now for healing in people's bodies. God, I just know of so many people who are dealing, obviously, with COVID, but then other sicknesses. Father, we ask right now that your goodness would happen in their lives in Jesus' name right now. God, that we'd hear of miracles just taking place because we prayed. And God, we ask for your blessing of just provision over people's lives, God. Every person in this room, every person watching, every person that stumbles on it, God, we ask that they would know you're a God who takes care of your children. And God, we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for what you've done in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be blessed. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.